display. Cool. Excellent. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for coming. My name is Sean Freeman. I'm the owner of Living Seeds. Um, it was very short notice, but um, it's, it's nice to see a whole lot of people here. Um, today's talk is going to be relatively informal for a couple of reasons. The first one is I have a brand new laptop. Um, and I have a seed saving presentation that I've been doing for many years and it's well oiled and I know exactly how it flows. And last night I opened up my laptop and I tried to find my seed saving presentation. It didn't transfer to the new laptop. So um, I put one together so it's not as slick and as pretty as it normally is. Um, so please bear with me. However, I have covered most of the things. So um, before I get started on the presentation, a lot of people ask me, how did Living Seeds start? Hey guys, just find a seat. Um, a lot of people ask me how Living Seeds started and um, how did I get into the seed business? And um, it was never really a business. How Living Seeds started was I was 10 years old and if I saw a tree that had seed or a plant that had seed, I would steal the seeds and I'd put them into my pocket and I just stole seeds all the time. Um, and I had a little wooden box and I put the seeds into the wooden box and I just collected seeds. And the whole idea was that one day I'd plant all of these seeds and make this beautiful garden. And 20 years later, planted the seeds and very few of them actually came up. But that was just one of those things. Um, my eldest daughter... Um, who is now almost 20, she's the adult in the house. Um, when she was born 20 years ago, I was growing orchids and aloes and all of this cool stuff. And then she was born and I wanted to start feeding her healthy food. So naturally, it goes to vegetable gardening. And very soon I started collecting vegetable seeds. And what happened was, there's a little Portuguese lady down the road and she had this giant Portuguese garlic and... Um, this other guy had chilies and we just started swapping seeds and very soon people started saying talk to Sean he's got all of these strange seed varieties and I never knew what heirloom seeds wa were okay? it was just I had seeds I had cool seeds if you wanted seed I would swap with you as long as you gave me something um, and very often I just give the seeds away because well that's what you do and in 2000 and I think early 2009, a guy from Kalk Bay, Cork Bay, whichever one you prefer, because um, I've been admonished twice, once for calling it Kalk Bay and once for calling it Cork Bay. Um, so yeah, <laughs> a guy from Kalk Bay, his name is Steve uh, Steve Fenter. He owns a, a web hosting company called Texo, and. Um, he was doing a magazine, and I don't know if any of you remember a magazine called Shared Earth. It was only four or five um, editions, but he phoned me up and said, Sean, I've got this magazine, and I'm looking for a subscription driver. I believe you do all of these heirloom seeds. Can I buy some seed of you? So I said, Steve, absolutely, but I don't sell the seed. I just give them away. So he says, no, but I have to pay for them. So I said, but they're heirloom seeds. You just, you just share them. And Steve said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a website. So it was like, what am I going to do with the website? So it was cool. I sent him down some seeds, and every subscriber got a, a, a couple of heirloom seed varieties. And I got a website that I knew, nothing, I knew absolutely nothing about. I didn't know how to build a website. I didn't know how to run a website. And we actually didn't do anything with it. 
I was still working for Bill Fenter, selling voice and data equipment, and I was really, really hating my job. But anyway, so one of his editions of Shared Earth, he put a full-page advert in because he, he needed to actually fill up space in his magazine. And he said Living Seeds was launching in August 2009. And I picked up the phone and I said to him, Steve, what are you doing? He says, well, guess what? Your website needs to be launched. And we launched our website in August of 2009. I think we had 17 varieties on the website. We had seed to sell of 17 varieties. But we, we put on like 35 or 40 varieties just to make sure that you know, we actually looked like we knew what we were doing. And that was the start of Living Seeds. Um, we had well over 100 varieties that we had, but not enough seed to actually physically sell seed. And I've just heard today that somebody has my very first newsletter that I sent out, which I've long lost. Um, and it was actually very interesting. Um, and in a matter of two years, um, well, we were the first heirloom vegetable seed company in South Africa. Um, we were the first heirloom vegetable seed website in South Africa. Um, we grew all of the seed that we sold ourselves. It's just what we did. Um, and now... We're at a point where I think on our website we, we have 600 varieties for sale. Um, we grow every year over 700 varieties on our property. We have contract growers all over the country. We have, contract, we have international contract growers for, for certain things. We import certain seed varieties um, that can't be grown effectively in South Africa. Um, and we're a seed company. We're a small seed company, but we have the largest selection in in South Africa, which is, which is quite cool. Um, my passion for seed comes from seed saving. And that is what I'm going to teach you now is what I would like every single person to do, is to save seed. You don't have to save 700 varieties. You don't have to, have to try. And so many customers come through and um, they'll order two packets of everything because they want to save seed. And it's a case of we don't save everything that we sell. We have people that do a lot of the work for us. Certain things um, like, like corn, we can only grow four varieties a year, but we sell 12 or 15 varieties of corn. So we have people all over the country that actually grow corn for us. And all you guys need to do is save two or three varieties. It makes my job so much easier because we can't do everything. Okay, so... Living Seeds is family owned and run. Um, it, it started with myself and my eldest daughter. She's still not here, but it, <laughs> it started with myself and my, and my eldest daughter. The first day or the first evening that we packed all of our seed, and we literally packed all of the seed that we had for sale in one evening. And I said to my wife, I said, if this business actually makes a thousand rand a month, I'll be surprised. Okay, we now employ, I think, 12 permanent staff, and our, our casual staff goes up to 50. So, yeah, 1,000 rand a month, is, um, we're doing quite well. We're South Africa's first with largest heirloom vegetable seed supplier. We're very proud of that fact. Um, we're the only commercial grower of heirloom seed in South Africa. Um, and when I mean commercial, it's a case of we're not, we don't grow tons of seed like other seed companies, but we grow 600 varieties. Nobody else does that. Um, and we have a proud history of seed saving and seed, sh and seed sharing, which I've, I've just explained to you. Um, please excuse the very basic presentation, as I explained. 
Um, it normally is a lot nicer than this. Okay, there's three main types of seed. You've got open pollinated seed or OPV varieties. Um, and these may or may not be heirloom or heritage. Now, um, a very good example is we have a tomato on our website called Bull's Breeder. It's a yellow tomato. It's a nice beefsteak-sized tomato. And that tomato variety is an open pollinated variety, but it is a new variety. It's only about 10 years old. It was developed by a guy called Bill Kerr. Those of you that read the Farmers Weekly will, will see the vegetable um, portion in, in the Farmers Weekly is written by Bill Kerr. He developed this as the female line for one of his hybrids. And he said to us, he said, Sean, this is a nice tasting tomato. You're welcome to have it. Put it on your website. So we called it Bill's Breeder. He actually gave it a number. But we called it Bill's Breeder. Put it onto our website. We do a tomato tasting every single year. For the last four years, it's been in the top three every single year. And it's never the same people that do the tomato tasting. Now, typically, how tomato tasting works is that people will look at with their eye and... A yellow tomato isn't a favoured tomato, but it is so exceptional that it's, it's been in the top three every single year. Okay, so open pollinated varieties, basically what it means is if you take the seed out of a tomato and you plant it in the ground, you'll get the exact same tomato that you planted the year before, as long as it wasn't hybridised. Does that make sense? Okay. Hybrid tomato, or hybrid seed, is when they take... Um, you get F1, F2, F3 um, hybrids, but I'm just going to give you the basic um, explanation of a hybrid. Is you, is you take two tomato varieties, so you'll take Bull's Breeder and you'll take another tomato variety, and you'll manually cross the tomatoes, and what will happen is that tomato seed that you save, you'll plant it, it will typically be, um, they'll all grow the same, they'll all look the same, They'll have hybrid vigor, which, which means that they'll produce exceptionally well. And if there were any disease resistances that actually carried through, those, those plants that you, that you are growing will have those resistances. If you save seed from that hybrid and plant it out, you'll get what's called segregation, and you would have <coughs> 100 seeds, 100 different tomato plants. Okay? And you would not be able to get back to the variety that you planted the year before. Is there anything wrong with hybrids? Personally, I don't believe so. Hybrids serve a very specific purpose um, and, and they are required. The nice thing for a seed company is if I sell you a hybrid and you like the variety, if you want the variety again next year, you've got to come back to me and I'll charge you a premium for that. Okay, so as a seed company, it's very good. GMO seeds, um, I think everybody in this room knows knows what GMO is, um, we are pretty, we're not pretty much, we are 100% anti-genetically modified seed varieties. We like to call it genetically infected um, because one of the processes that they use is they actually inject a viral payload in to, to, to carry the GMO genes into it and it's a virus, it's an infection, so we call it genetically infected, but we'll see how that goes. Okay, not all seed is bad. There's a different there are definite needs for hybrid seed varieties. Okay? The pros are economies of scale. If you've got a farmer and he plants 10,000 cabbage varieties, he doesn't want to send his, his, his workers into that field 20 times to go and harvest 10,000 cabbages. He wants to send a truck in, harvest the entire field, 
send it off to the market, prepare the field for the next crop. Okay? It makes a lot of sense. Um, you have what's called hybrid vigor. Does everybody know what hybrid vigor is? Hybrid vigor is when you take two varieties, you cross them, uh, you cross them uh, creating a hybrid, and that hybrid will grow faster, it'll produce more, um, it'll require typically less nutrients, okay, and um, it's just a, a generally more robust plant, and that is called hybrid vigor, okay. And Sorry? It's like a mongrel dog. Exactly like a mongrel dog. Correct. Okay. And you can actually use that analogy where you have dogs now, um, like a German Shepherds that have hip dysplasia, um, that have been line bred. You've got dogs like the English um, Bulldog that is physically unable to give birth by itself. It's unable to mate, it's unable to give birth because it's been line bred so much that the dog is basically useless without humans procreating them. Um, and that's what, happens, that's what has happened with, um, with our maize varieties, especially in South Africa. Our maize varieties, uh, the, the genetic base for maize is so narrow, it really, really is so narrow, that if anything happened to hap had to happen to those genetic varieties where you have a disease that actually knocks those varieties, we would lose our entire maize crop. Okay, because there is no genetic diversity. Okay, the cons to hybrid seed is you can't save the seed. Um, there is a way to dehybridize, and we use dehybridizing on on certain varieties. Um, one of the varieties that we have, Nigerian oil seed, which is a massive um, sunflower variety. It's got heads about this size. When we got it, about 50% of the seed that we got was segregating, and it took us five years to clean it up um, and we're now getting about 1% segregation um, but it, you can dehybridize things okay the cons to hybrid seed as well you have to repurchase your seed every single season now if you go into your local totals or um, nursery the majority of the seed that's on the shelf if it hasn't got a number attached to it or an F1 or F2 behind the name is open pollinated. So all of the seed that you will buy for your vegetable garden, kirchhoffs, maphids, living seeds, what's the other one? Stark ears. Okay, they are typically all um, open pollinated varieties unless they've got a number behind them. So don't let anybody tell you that the seed inside the, the, the nursery is all hybrid. If it's got a number behind it or an F1, there's a very high. If it's got F1 or F2, it's a hybrid. Okay, it's a first filial hybrid, and that's guaranteed. If there's a number in the name. It's generally a hybrid as well. Okay, so don't let people tell you that what's on the shelf is is hybrid. There's a reason why those companies, and if you look at Starkeys and Mayfords and and Kirchhoffs and ourselves, there's certain hybrid varieties. Or, sorry, there's certain open pollinated varieties that produce very well. Money Maker Tomato. It's got a name, Money Maker Tomato. There's a reason why it's called Money Maker. Okay? It produces exceptionally well. It's an open pollinated variety. All of the seed houses carry it. Um, Ashley Cucumber produces very well. All of the seed houses carry it. Why? It produces very well. 
Um, one of the seed companies sells a cucumber variety called Special Rust Resistant. I don't know if you've, if, if you've seen that. Special Rust Resistant. Okay, Special Rust Resistance is Ashley Cucumber. What they've done is that they've said that this cucumber is resistant to rust. Cucumbers don't get rust. It's marketing. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Why do we grow heirloom and heritage varieties? Because they're cool. Black tomatoes, striped tomatoes, jam tomatoes, paste tomatoes, sauce tomatoes. There's a difference between a paste tomato and a sauce tomato. I promise you there is. A sauce tomato is a nice, saucy, wet tomato. A paste tomato is a dry tomato. You make paste out of it. If you want a frying tomato, everybody likes fried tomatoes. Do you know you're not supposed to fry red tomatoes? But everybody fries red tomatoes. Who remembers a movie called Fried Green Tomatoes? Okay. The best tomatoes to fry are green tomatoes. Just don't eat the ribs. Do you remember? With the ribs. Do you remember? You don't. They were cannibals. <laughs> fried green tomatoes are cool. Just don't eat the ribs. Sorry? No. Um, the best fried tomatoes are green tomatoes. If you get a ripe green tomato and fry it, the flavor is absolutely phenomenal. A ripe green tomato. If you look at a green tomato, yes. If you look at a tomato, so a, a good example, um, well, any one of the green tomatoes, any one of the large green tomatoes, okay, um, if you... If it's ripe, it's got slight yellow lines on it. So it doesn't turn red. Okay. It's a, when it's ripe, it's green with faint yellow lines. It, the, the tomato does not turn red. So I'm not saying get a red tomato and while it's green, cook it. Get a ripe green tomato. And if you, if you go onto our website, we've got, about, uh, we've got a number. We've got, um, we've got lime green salad. We've got green stripes. We've got this about about 12 or 15 different types of green tomatoes. Correct. Correct. And my personal opinion, it changes every single year, but my personal opinion is that the green tomatoes and the black tomatoes have the best flavor. We, in a unique situation, we grow about 140 kinds of tomatoes every single year. We taste all the different tomatoes and every single year somebody says no this is my best tomato this year no this is my best tomato this year so a green tomato I'm not talking about an unripe red tomato I'm talking about a tomato that is ripe but it's green it has faint yellow stripes okay um, so heirloom varieties are they're just cool they're fantastic They've got unique flavors. Every single tomato tastes different. If you look at all of the carrots, all, all of the different colored carrots, each carrot tastes like a carrot, but it tastes different. It has its own unique flavors. It has better nutrition. Um, a very good example would be brinjals, uh, when you're looking at nutrition. Now, most of you will remember that brinjals used to have a slight bitter or a very bitter um, back taste. Okay. That bitterness is caused by um, something called sylvestrals. In, and, and sylvestrals are naturally bitter. What they found is that 
is that sylvestrals are phenomenal cancer-fighting agents. However, what's happened is that our taste buds or our bodies have been tuned that everything needs to be sweet. Everyone's chasing a high bricks content in their vegetables. The sweet corn has to be super sweet. So they have what's called an S2 gene in sweet corn. That S2 gene is the super sweet gene. And you'll find that sweet corn tastes like sugarcane. Oh, this is so sweet. It's tasty. No, it's sweet. It's not tasty. Okay. Everybody has been taught sweetness equals taste. We're not going for the sweet corn flavor that actually was, it was sweet, but it tasted like corn. Sweet corn now tastes like sugarcane. Okay, and that's, and that's um, we're losing a lot of the nutrition because the bitterness has been bred out. That's, that bitter taste has been, it needs to be sweet. Put sugar with it, put sugar with it, put sugar with it. Um, so what's happened is that they're breeding out the nutrition out of the plants in flavor, out of the fruits and vegetables in flavor for sweetness. Okay. Illumin heritage varieties have pests and disease resistance. Yes, you can breed a hybrid variety with 15 different disease resistances. Um, and the only reason why you need it is because you're intensively farming, you're monocropping, monoculture, and your disease load in the ground or in your environment is so high that you have to have all of these disease all of these disease resistances in one plant to actually harvest a proper crop. Um, whereas heritage varieties will have disease resistances specifically for the environment. We've got a tomato variety called Karamaka Togo. It's a long, thin tomato. It actually looks like a chili, or it looks very much like a chili, but it's a tomato. It comes from, from Togo, and it comes from a market called the Kara Market. And... Um, no, Kara Market Tom Tomato. K A R A Market Tomato. Um, and it is very well flavored. It is resistance to powdery mildew and it is resistance to um, red spider mite. It is always the last tomato to die in our tunnels. I love it. Absolutely love it. Okay, however, it's resistance to those two diseases, but um, it is it is very susceptible to nematodes. Okay. However, we have breeders that'll use that variety for the red spider mite and and the PM resistance, and they'll use a different one that has nematode resistance. So um, they have resistances specific to certain areas, um, and that's one of their benefits. Um, they have environmental adaptions. So I'll give you a very good example. In, in the Eastern Cape, just up the road, that way, just up the road, uh, a couple of years back, about seven or eight years back, what happened was that the government came in to all of these small little villages and they said, guys, here's genetically modified maize seed and here's fertilizer. We are giving you free seed and free fertilizer. We'll be doing this for the next however long. And what happened was a lot of those villagers ate their old crops, their old little stunted mealy multicolored maize varieties that had developed environmental protections for that valley. They planted the GM stuff. Two years later, they've lost all of their varieties and the government stopped giving free maize and free fertilizer. 
Okay. Um, I explained to you earlier about the about the maize having a very narrow genetic base. Okay, we've got a, a very limited um, maize genetic base that they're using to produce our food in South Africa. Whereas if you look at at, um, at heritage varieties, our genetic base is exceptionally wide. And that is one of the protections that we have. So what would happen is if you plant um, a tomato variety here, so let's just use brandy wine, one of the brandy wine, uh, Suddeth's brandy wine tomato. If you plant it here for 10 years and I get the seed out of the same packet as you and I plant it on my farm for the next 10 years, in 10 years' time, if we compare the two uh, tomato plants, they'll be totally different. So you'd have one that's adapted specifically to the Gordons Bay area, and I'd have one adapted specifically to southern Gauteng. And the tomatoes would taste different, and they'd look and they'd look different as well. You'd see that they're actually brandy wines, but they'd look different. And that's due to what's called natural gene natural genetic drift, because what will happen is. You'll plant 10 seeds, I'll plant 10 seeds, and I'll only harvest the seed from the best-looking plant. And you do the exact same thing. And in 10 years' time, selecting that, you'd be line breeding for a specific plant variety. So this year, you'd harvest of one plant, and I'd harvest of one plant, because that's the best-looking plant. Next year, you'd have five plants to harvest off, and I'd have five plants to harvest off. In 10 years' time, you'd be harvesting that all look the same, in your area, and they all look the same in my area as well. Am I making sense? Cool. Okay, so, moving over to the seed saving basics. This is a photograph, and I'll show you another one now, um, of our dining room table a couple of years back. So this is how we started. Uh, let me go back. Okay, so, um, if you look at, at, at gel-coated seed, if you if you pop a seed out of a cucumber, or if you pop a seed out of a out of a tomato, there's a little gel coat around that seed. Have you have you all seen that? Okay. Now that gel coat that gel coating does a number of things. Okay. The first thing it does is it actually protects the seed, but it also harbors disease as well. So, in nature, what would happen is that you'd have a whole lot of seeds that'll fall to the ground. Some of those seeds would rot. Some of them would just dry out naturally. If it dries out naturally, there's a germination inhibitor in that gel coat. And that germination inhibitor prevents the seed from germinating all at the same time. So you'd have 10 seeds that fall to the ground. Some of the seeds rotted. Some of the seeds just dried with their gel coat. The first rains come. The first two seeds come up. There's no rain for two weeks. That seedling dies. The second rain comes. And as it starts washing away the germination inhibitor, a couple more seeds keep coming up until eventually you have two or three successive days of rain or, or a nice wet two or three weeks of rain and you have a plant that actually grows up it puts its roots down deep enough and it's able to survive so when you're saving seed what you want to do is you want to remove the gel coat from around the outside of the seed but before we get to that you need to choose your tomatoes carefully. So what you'll see here is this flower over here is opened. Okay, that flower is opened. Um, it's been it's been self-pollinated, or uh, this is inside one of our tunnels. Or what's happened is you've got a um, one of the um, the small wild bees. I can't think of the name right now. Um, that'll come in and it'll actually 
cross-pollinate your flowers. So what we would do in this, in this situation is we would pull off this flower here and we'd pull off that flower. And we'd just leave that spur with a couple of flowers on it. Because a tomatoes are naturally self-pollinated, all we need to do is we get one of those organza bags. You know where to get them from, your bath salts and things like that. Uh, we do sell them as well, but I'm pretty sure that you ladies get bath salts and it's exactly what you use. So you put a bag over the over the spur and we would walk past and we'd have strings hanging down and you just flick the strings as you go down the tunnel. You just flick the strings, the plant shakes and what happens is it fertilizes itself. And I'll show you another picture now, but what we're looking at over here, you've got the stigma and the style, which is the female portion. This is the little tomato over here. Okay, this yellow cone is called the anther cone. The inside of the anther cone is where the male sheds its pollen. Now the flower hangs down like this. So all you want to do is just shake the plant so that the pollen falls down, it hits the end of the stigma, which is very sticky, and um, it'll then actually grow down and fertilize the ovary. Okay, so if you look at this at this style over here, the style stick at the end is actually exposed and we call that a promiscuous flower okay so there's two flowers here here you can see the stigma and the style at the end this is a promiscuous flower because it's open to any passing insect this one over here the stigma actually ends about there okay so this is not a promiscuous flower and typically what you'd see is if you go and look at a tomato flower these would be the smaller um, tomato varieties like the cherry tomatoes typically okay the smaller tomato varieties these ones over here would be the larger the nice big, uh, big beefsteak variety so if it's growing in your garden there's a very low chance of this one being cross-pollinated but there's a very high chance of this one being cross-pollinated because what happens is the solitary bee needs to come in stick his proboscis inside there lick around to get the pollen and as he does that he'll, he'll actually transfer pollen onto the stigma okay flies off to the next variety does the same thing and that's how a natural hybrid actually is produced so all you want to do is prevent that and how you prevent that is by putting a little bag over it so once you've done that you need to save seed off one or two tomatoes it's a couple of hundred seeds that seed for the next 10 years cool okay um, so that's basically all you need to do what we would do is we have large we have large tunnels would grow a variety inside the tunnel and actually close the tunnel off so we have no insects inside there um, we do have a problem with with ants um, not on the tomatoes but on the cucumbers okay so those are the two different tomato flowers as long as you use the little organza bag you're good to go what needs to happen? You just squeeze the seed out into a container. So we used to use little 500 ml containers. We now use 5 litre buckets. We're soon going to go to 25 litre buckets. Um, and we just squeeze the seed out. We have a team of ladies and all they do is they just clean seed out into, into buckets. What needs to happen is they need to ferment. And you'd see all the different colors. So he has a green tomato, he has an orange tomato, yellow tomato, black tomatoes, etc. But the most important part over here is this, this white myth that's growing on the top of the, 
of the containers. You want that white miff because what the white miff is doing is it's breaking down that gel sac. Once the gel sac is broken down, the germination inhibitor is destroyed. It'll also destroy um, certain seed transferable diseases as well. There's two ways of doing it. You can ferment it or you can use an enzyme. If you use an enzyme, the disease is carried through. If you ferment it, the disease is destroyed. This, you can see there's a dining room table chair over there. This was my dining room table in tomato harvest season for, I think, three years. And you'd walk into the house and all you'd smell is rotten tomato. And my wife would complain. And I'd say, my darling, it's the smell of money. <laughs> now it gets done outside in a tunnel and my wife is um, a lot happier with me. Okay. All that needs to happen now is you need to dry the seed. So we will dry the seed like this. It gets dried. We put a fan. We've got a large fan. It blows over the trays of seed. We'll rub the seed to actually loosen it. This is one way that a lot of seed savers do it where they take three seeds, they put three seeds onto a piece of paper, they pack the pieces of paper away into, into an envelope, um, and when tomato season comes, they just plant them. What will happen is, you'll see that they haven't been fermented. Okay? And you'd have a 100% success rate, or you'd have a 30% success rate, it's 6 of 1, but it works. It does work. And it's a much easier way. Um, and then it's basically has, of just planting them. Okay. And for the fermentation process, yes. do you add anything to the seed? And okay. The question was asked, do we add anything to the seed when we're fermenting? Yes, we do. We double the volume with water. Okay, so if you've got half full with, with tomato seed juice, fill it up with water, let it ferment, give it a stir every second day or whatever. Okay, but the fermentation place, the fermentation process, um, it's it's quick, three four days. As long as there's miff, three of, once there's miff over the top, give it another day, rinse it. We just rinse it in a sieve, so you actually take the whole lot, you dump it into a sieve, and you under running water, you just clean the seed, and all you'll have left is is seed, with no gel sac. Okay, tomato seed, um, we typically say tomato seed is 10 years. Uh, take your tomato seed, stick it into a drawer, come back 10 years later, you'll get a 100% germination rate. We've got a tomato that we're releasing in, in July this year called um, Uam Andres. Um, Uam Andres died, I think, 15, year, 15, 15 or 17 years ago. He died. And what happened was his family took his chest of drawers and put it into storage. And he was sick for the couple of years before he died. So he didn't do any gardening. They cleaned out his drawers a couple of years back and they found a pill bottle with his tomato seed in it. Um, Andres used to grow these giant red tomatoes that were just absolutely awesome. And they often spoke about it and, you know wonder where we can get the seed again. Meanwhile, it was in this little pill bottle in his drawer. When they found it, they sent me the seed. They sent me the seed that they reckon was at least 20 years old. We got a 90% germination rate. And there was no special... It was in a pill bottle in a storage room at the back of the farm. So, how was it stored? Not very well. 
So yeah, tomato seed, you're looking at at least 10 years. We will say 10 years. I, I know that we can do at least 20 years. Okay. Um, okay. Pumpkins, melons, gourds, and cucumbers. If you have a look over here, just take a note of these cable ties. Um, it's quite important. And I'll explain how that works now. But this is, the, this is a photograph of one of our cucumber tunnels. Okay. Um, if you look at pumpkins... And, and cucumbers, etc. This is the female flower, and this is the male flower. You can see that the female flower has a fruit; it has a baby fruit. So I showed you on that on that one picture the baby tomato inside the flower. Same over here. Here's the baby pumpkin. Here's the male. Here's the male flower as well. Okay. So what we would do is um, the evening before we go into pollinate, we would go and pick. A whole lot of male flowers and we typically pick two male flowers to each female flower um, for three years we will pick the male and the female flower of different plants so we'd have two male flowers of, of two different plants onto one female plant and then every fourth year we'll take the male flower off the same plant as the female it's just to make sure that we actually breeding true to type um, if you look at pumpkin flowers, and it's the wrong time of the year for you to go out and ha have a look now, but you'll see that the pumpkin flower, it's green. The flower is actually green. And then the night before it opens, it turns yellow. I don't know if you've seen that. Okay, so, and we call it coloring up. As soon as the flower colors up, it's ready. Okay, so you'll see that this pumpkin flower would be green. And the night or the evening before it opens, it'll turn yellow. Same with the male. It'll color up the evening before. We'll go ahead and we'll pick a whole lot of male flowers and we'll actually use a peg and we'll peg the male flower to the female flowers. Okay. Next morning, my daughter would go through and she'll open up and she'll actually hand pollinate. And Let me show you how to do this. It's very easy. So basically what happens is the minute you remove that peg off the female flower... Oops. you'll see that that female flower is actually it's bulging open the minute you remove that peg the female flower opens up it says how's it okay you take the male flower and you strip the petals off and you'd have a paintbrush and if you have a good look over here these are my fat fingers okay I'm holding the male flower and there is the anther of the male and we're just using it as a paintbrush and we're painting the stigma can you see that once that's done you need to close it up again so you'll see over here we've got two spent males lying asleep on the side as they normally do okay and we've closed up the female flower again okay and you have to do that because if a bee gets inside there it's game over rip the flower off, start again. And what we would do is we'd take another cable tie and we'd hook a cable tie around the female, around the female stem so that we know when we're harvesting pumpkins that we didn't miss a flower because it's rampant. The growth is, ramp is rampant and, and what will happen is you'll miss the occasional female flower that will be naturally pollinated by bees. When we harvest, 
We've got cable tires, and we know, okay, fine, these ones have been hand-pollinated. If there's no cable tire, um, we don't save the seed from it. Makes sense. Okay. Drying pumpkin seeds, we just wash them under running water, spread them out on one of these polystyrene plates. With a fan, you dry it out. You want to dry it out until that silvery skin, there's like a silvery skin on the seed. That silvery skin, it, it blows off naturally. Okay, it doesn't, you mustn't have to, you shouldn't have to rub it off. Okay, the best test to know if the seed is dry, you take the seed and you snap it in half. If it snaps in half, it must snap. It mustn't bend and then snap. It must just go dry. Okay, you don't need all of the 5, 5%, 7% testing variety, uh, testing um, equipment. Okay, so this is a, it looks like a, a cucumber tunnel. This is my youngest daughter, Jenna. You'll see her running around somewhere with funny purple hair. Okay, and right at the back is Leah. And what my, what my girls do is, in pollination season, they spend an hour and a half as early as possible inside the morning, as early as possible in the morning, and they'll run through these tunnels hand pollinating. Um, you'll see there's a netting at the back and there's netting at the side and that's just to have air flow through the tunnel but no insects coming through. If they walk inside there and they hear a bee inside the tunnel, basically what happens is they'll walk down and they'll strip every single female flower off those plants. Okay, and that's a day gone. So they love it when there's bees inside the tunnel. Okay, so what they would do is they would walk down these tunnels and because unlike a cucumber, unlike a a pumpkin flower. It's very hard to actually keep the flower closed, and you'll see why now. Okay, those flowers are very small, and you can't peg them closed. This melon over here um, is actually unusual because this is an andromanaceous flower. So you, you have on tomatoes, you have a perfect flower. There's male and female on the same flower. On, on, on cucumbers and melons and pumpkins you have imperfect flowers. It's a male flower or it's a female flower. But then you get ones that are, they need the funny bathrooms. This is a female, this is a female flower, but that yellow is a sterile male component and it's called andromanaceous. So what they need to do, they'll strip the petals off the female flower to gain access to um, the stigma, and then they'll need to pull those male, those sterile male anthers off. Okay, um, I see the photographs are swapped around. My apologies. So that's what the flower looks like before she strips it off. Then she'll strip it off, and it'll look like the previous one. Okay, and here you'd have that female stick that she wants to work with. All of the flower, all of the petals are off and there she has the male part. So she has the male flower, she's stripped all of the petals off the male flower again, and she's uh, just uh, rubbed it on. I can see this is a watermelon flower, so it's a, it's a different series of photographs, but that's, that's the male portion, hand pollinating the female portion over there. And the next photograph should be a cable tie. Okay, same story over here, the cable tie goes around the, around the, the fruit, so that we know that the seed is 
um, hand pollinated. Okay. You'd be surprised. A lot of people say to me, ah, you've got an easy job. You just harvest seed and sell it. Go for it. Seriously, go for it. Okay. Um, there's a lot of work in here. There's a lot of planning. If you, if you are planting 700 varieties, you need to know what you're doing. Okay. And um, I think we charge a fair price for our seed. We, we try very hard not to do the annual price increase. Um, we'll do a price increase every couple of years and it's normally a much bigger jump but we still try and keep it as cost effective as possible okay and there's a reason behind it and this is half the reason okay yes 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 Okay. Okay, so the question is um, can I only plant one watermelon variety and hand pollinate only one flower for seed? Yes, you can. Um, what you can do is if you plant a watermelon and a sponge speck in the same garden, they will not cross pollinate. They just won't. They're two different species. Okay. Um, and if your neighbours don't have any watermelons or spun speck, and your neighbours' neighbours, because the bee can fly quite far, if there's no contamination, that variety that you plant, 100%. You can save it directly off your, out of your garden without hand pollinating. If you only want to save seed off one flower, do it on one flower, and that's exactly what I want you to do. I seriously, I want you to save seed off one flower. If you save the seed out of one watermelon, it's 100 watermelon seeds, okay? Um, you don't have to buy watermelon seeds for the next five, six years. You can share it with all of your friends. It's a fantastic gift to give to your friends, and it helps us out. Yes, I sell seed for a living, but it's a case of you're gonna, you will eat the cream of Saskatchewan watermelon. Oh, it's a phenomenal watermelon. Okay, next year I want to try a different watermelon. You're going to come back to me and buy seed. Just different seed. It doesn't actually matter. Cool. Did I answer your question? Correct. So yes, they would. Okay. So if you've got three different watermelon varieties inside your garden um, and you want to save seed off all three watermelon varieties, cool, we can do that. So those organza bags that you saw, you can take the organza bag, you can put it around the female flower. The female flower also colors up the night before it's going to, it's going to open. Same with the... Um, these flowers will colour up the same as the pumpkin flowers the night before they open. So all you do is you break a male flower off or two or three male flowers, you put it into the organza bag, put the organza bag over the female flower and off you go. Um, Bulker, who I spoke about earlier, what he does is he actually tears a page out of the Farmer's Weekly and he'll put the two male flowers into the farm. he'll fold it into four, put the two male flowers into the, into the Farmer's Weekly and clip that onto the female flower. 
okay and then he'll do the pollination and just use that page just to clip it closed again so you don't have to use an organza bag you just need to use any method of keeping the the um the bees away from the flowers it doesn't matter how you do it okay but it, it, it works best if you pick the male flowers off don't pick the female flowers off yes 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 um, I wouldn't do you have bees working in your garden okay so then it's not a bee problem it's probably a feeding problem okay so look at, at, at using um, a high phosphorus fertilizer something like vita fruit and flower um, add bone meal to your soil that's also high in phosphorus okay so it's probably a feeding issue more than a bee issue okay um, pumpkins and butternuts and squash and things like that um, watermelons are gross feeders they need a lot of food Okay, it, it depends how you grow it. Okay, so if you look at this tunnel over here, um, this is a 30 meter long tunnel. There's 100 plants per line. So there's 300 plants in that tunnel. Sorry, I lied. This year we've changed it. There's 150 plants inside here. So what we've done, what, what we've done, my English can like to be good. What we've done this year is we've planted one plant and had two of these blue strings for the one plant. What we found was uh, we were getting a pretty low yield on our plants. We had a look at it and we, and we decided that our leaf coverage per plant was too low. Half of your plant is above the soil. The other half of the plant is below the soil. The leaves are your plant's stomach, not the roots. Okay. So if you, if you make the stomach smaller, the, the plant produces less. So what we've done this year is we've actually had... Um, one plant for two lines and we've increased our, le our leaf surface the amount of space that you need um, oh and sorry we will get between four and six fruits per plant watermelons smaller melons we get up to 15 15 to 20 uh, fruit per plant um, in the garden you would need I would reckon two and a half to three square meters for a watermelon plant that is looked after properly if you let it do what it wants to do um, you will get a lower yield. You need to look after the plants. Okay. Um, can I answer all of the gardening lessons uh, uh, questions at the end? But Marianne, please remember it. Okay. Okay. Are we growing them in tunnels? The reason why we're growing them in tunnels is to keep the insects away from the plants. Netting. Shade cloth, yes. It depends on the size of the holes. If an insect can get inside there, then it'll cross. Um, we have a problem with our, our watermelons and cucumbers. Um, you can't see any in this picture over here, but we have an ant problem. We have a major ant problem. Um, and what the ants will do is they'll actually climb up the plants and 
and they will cross-pollinate because they, they're drinking the nectar out of the flowers. Um, so what will happen is the ants will cross-pollinate the plants. What we do is we make a 100% organic mix, 50% borax, 50% sugar. Okay, You heat it over a stove and you add a little bit of water to make a nice thick paste. You take that paste, you put it into, into, into little lids or dishes. The ants will come. They've, ants are highly acidic. Okay, they'll eat the sugar, absorbing some of the borax, and the borax will actually alter the ants' pH, and they'll dissolve from the inside out. It's disgusting, hey? <laughs> okay. All right. This is one of the hardest crops to keep pure. The reason why is that you can plant a variety over here, and this has happened to us, where we've planted our 300 organically grown heirloom heritage corn variety that we've been growing for the last five years. Okay, and it's like next year we're going to be supplying the seed and we plant it and our next door neighbor, well, our next door neighbor, a kilometer away plants genetically modified maize. And when you find out what their pollen shed date is and our pollen shed date, and it's the same date. I can't go and tell my neighbor, Darby, please pull out your 15 hectares of GMO maize for my 400 organically grown heirloom. He's going to look at me and say something in Afrikaans. Okay. So what we do is we actually destroy our crop. Okay. And it's happened. It's happened on numerous occasions. Fortunately, um, about four years ago, five years ago, four years ago, four years ago, he planted GMO maize three times in a row and had a crop failure, a germination failure, three times in a row. And Monsanto came to him and said the first time, no, it was this, it was this problem. He didn't plant a refuge crop. And he said, well, there's my refuge crop growing, but your crop is not growing. Second time, it was, it was planted too deep and he dug out it and he said it planted at the right depth. But Monsanto came back every single time and said to him it was his fault. And um, he now refuses to plant GMO maize. Okay. So he plants sorghum. And it's like, thank you, Lord. It's, it's just, it's absolutely fantastic. So we have no issues in our valley with GMO maize because our neighbor has had major issues, issues with GMO maize. So, yes, I love GMO maize sometimes. Okay. That is black Aztec, yes. Yes. Okay, that's been crossed. That has been crossed. Okay, so the nice thing with with um, with maize is that you will see when you harvest it if it has been genetically or if it has been hybridized. So if all of those kernels come up black, fantastic, or red or whatever color it is, then it's it's perfect. If you, if you get little red or white or, or yellow uh, kernels, then you'll know that it has been crossed by another maize variety. Um, you know the silks that come out of the end of the maize? Okay. Each silk equals one seed. Okay. So each silk comes down to one seed. So you have to pollinate every single silk to get a full head of seed. So, my next question, who has seen that? <laughs> <laughs> 
hey? Now, let me tell you how you grow corn. Sure, I've got this little vegetable garden over here, but I really, really want some corn. So I'm going to plant my corn in a line. Am I right? Hey? No. But you still get ones like that. What? Okay. Oh, oh, so you plant one over here and one over there. Well, it's even worse. Okay. So, what happens is that corn is wind pollinated. And the reason why it's so hard to keep pure is that it's very difficult to prevent your corn from being cross-pollinated by another crop. But there is a way to do it. All right. The first way is don't plant it in a line and don't plant one here and one over there and one over there. If you read the back of our packaging, we say to you minimum of 40 plants. Okay, and there's a reason for that. Imagine, excuse this, imagine that you plant one row of corn down the side of your garden over here. Okay, This plant pollinates that plant, that plant, that plant, that plant. So if you have wind that blows down your line of corn like this, that's cool. They all get pollinated except for the first one, but we can handle one loss. Okay, If the wind comes from this direction and blows that way, we have a problem, yes? Because all of the pollen gets blown away. All right, you have to plant it in a block. So if you plant it in a block and the wind comes from this direction, okay, the pollen goes like that. Does it make sense? Very simple. It has to be planted in a block. Your minimum planting to get viable seed to save is 40 plants. We would prefer 80. If you plant 80 plants, you don't need to come back to me and get fresh seed in a couple of years' time. Okay, so... Say again? Oh, this is uh, 40 plants. You can put 40 plants into an area the size of this. Easy. Sorry? It's not even two by two. You can get, you can get about 60 plants in, in this area. It's not a lot of space. You need, you need to plant, because you're planting intensively and you're watering intensively, you can plant... Um, plants every 15 centimeters or every sorry every 30 centimeters and 15 centimeters apart walkway uh, 30 centimeters across sorry let me try that again 30 centimeters apart 15 wide walkway 15 wide 30 centimeters apart that's all you need you don't need a lot of space for 40 plants okay feed them they want food all of your plants want food. So how do we harvest seed, or where would we harvest seed? For the best need, thank you. The best need diversity would be here. Okay? That block there. You eat all of these ones, you save all of those. If you've got pollen coming in on the wind from somewhere else, it's going to it has a higher chance of being trapped over here and a very low chance of getting to the center. And you'd see that if you start saving maize seed or corn seed for, for future production, you'd see that the ones on the outside would probably have a couple of specks in the plants. But the ones in the center, they are getting the pollen from all of these plants around them and their genetic diversity would be the highest. Cool.
So, now I want to grow two corn varieties. How am I going to do it? I want to grow two corn varieties side by side. How, I'm gonna, how, how will I keep the one variety pure from the other variety? Sorry? There we go. Okay, six weeks apart. So all you do is you plant the first variety, make a date, six weeks time plant the next variety. Make a date, six weeks time plant the next variety. So you're isolating it by time. Okay, very simple. Just plant them at different times. It doesn't work for many other crops, but for maize crops, every six weeks, and it's as simple as that, what we will do is we'll actually start growing our maize varieties in, in July in seedling trays inside the tunnel. So the 15th of September comes, we plant them out into the ground and we've got a month's head start. Okay, miscellaneous insect pollinated veggies, carrots, onions, brassicas, um, all of the hard stuff. Brassicas, we can't, we can grow brassicas for seed up in Gauteng. The problem is when the seed ripens is prime thunderstorm a period for us. In the prime thunderstorm period, those little seed pods get wet and the seed, and the seed rots. So we get a very low harvest um, of brassicas. So typically... We've got a couple of guys down in the Cape that grow for us, or we'll actually import the seed. Okay, we don't sell seed in large enough volumes to have a farmer grow hectares for us. So it's, um, it's generally brassica seed is actually imported. Okay, carrots, onions, we'll grow carrot seed ourselves. Um, and it's been many times that we've been harvesting carrot seed and there's lightning is coming down and you're just trying to get as much carrot seed in before the rain comes. Um, onions, same story as well. Okay, so the biggest problem with these is that if you look at the flower, okay, this is a carrot flower. So if you look at this carrot flower over here, this is a, a little ball of flowers. Um, and depending on the carrot variety, sometimes they're nice and flat and other times they are round like this. Um, that little ball over there is maybe 50 flowers. So it starts ripening from the outside in. And what will happen is that the first flowers, the male part, will ripen first. So the male part will ripen today. The female part of that flower will ripen in two days' time. So that the flower can't be self-pollinated. So what will happen is you'll have insects that land over here and go to the male plant, land over here, and on this, on this plant over here, the females will be receptive. So what's happening is the insects are carrying pollen from plant to plant like this. Okay? And it has to be done by insects. Otherwise, you've got a person with a paintbrush going over here looking for a ripe female going, it's just not going to work. Okay? So you have to use insects to do it for you. Okay? So because the flowers aren't... Each flower, did I explain that correctly, guys? You understand, hey? Okay. Because each flower isn't ripe, the male and the, and the female portion isn't ripe at the same time. The insects have to do the work for you. Okay. So what we do, it's called day caging. So we'll have a day cage. This one's full of, of, 
of carrot seed. So we'd have a day cage where you would you would isolate your carrot flowers or your un, or your onion flowers or your brassica flowers, um, and you would either, if it's large enough, you'd put um, a beehive inside there. Ours are nowhere near large enough to sustain a beehive. Or what you'd do is you'd zip this open, you'd open it up, and allow the bees to come in. Okay. The nice thing is you can have multiple cages running at the same time. You can put carrots, onions, and brassicas in the same cage. So you can do purple carrots inside here, and you can do yellow carrots inside here. You can do a red onion inside here, and a Welsh onion inside here. You can do purple cauliflower there, and purple broccoli inside there. What happens is, you'd open up this cage on day one, okay, allow the bees to work, or, or let it run for two days, allow the bees to work. You'd close it up in the evening once the bees have left, and you'd open up this one. So the, the flowers, so that the bees are unable to cross the two on the same day. Does it make sense? There's your problem. You lose half your seed. Because on the days that the bees aren't working it, the flowers open, the flower dies. It wasn't pollinated, it doesn't set seed. So you only get a 50% harvest. If you run three cages, you get a 33% harvest. If you run four cages, you get a 25% harvest. Okay, so 50% is where you're at your break-even point. Okay, the nice thing is that you can run multiple in one cage. And when we get given, we've been given a oxheart carrot seed. It's a carrot like this. Okay, but we were given 25 seeds. We'd use this principle. Okay, until we get to a point where we say, okay, fine, we're planting a field of oxheart carrot. The seed lasts for five years, so this year we'll plant oxheart carrot seed and let the bees work it. Cool. That is it, guys. That is basically the seed-saving principles. Um, if you guys can use this, you don't have to use all of them. You can use some of them. Okay, just save some seed. Okay, and just send me an email. I've got, the, I've got the same presentation. It's just a lot cleaner. Uh, uh, what happened was I... Yes, I'll send it to you, Marianne. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Cool. Yeah. What was the first question? Okay, cool. Okay, so the basics of starting a vegetable garden is start. Okay, seriously, I want to start a vegetable garden. I've got a customer, um, we go to a show in Peter Maritzburg every year. I've got a customer, he's bought seed from me three years in a row. So last year at the show, I recognized him because he spends like one and a half grand at a time. So I was like, hi, how's it, you know? So we're having a chat and his wife is at the counter and choosing seeds or whatever. So I said, how's your veggie garden going? So he looks at me and he says, how many times have I bought seed from you? So I said, no, you've been here the last two or three years. He says, yeah. He says, we still don't have a veggie garden. (sighs) 
start. Okay. Um, it's literally a case of whether you're growing in pots, whether you're growing in raised beds, whether you're growing in a small little bed. Um, our first veggie garden was maybe twice the size of this. Maybe. Okay. Um, start with simple vegetables. Like now, you want to be starting with lettuce. You want to be starting with Swiss chard. You want to be starting with beetroot. You want to be starting with radishes. Radish. Um, look for veggies that are an easy win. If you are new to growing veggies, look for veggies that are an easy win. That you can plant and harvest a couple of weeks. Radish. You plant it now, you wipe your eyes out, and you've got radish. You've got, what do I do with all these radish? Okay. Easy win in the garden. It gives you confidence to plant the harder stuff. Lettuce. Lettuce seed, you can literally take a packet of lettuce seed, walk down your garden and go like this. Okay? And six weeks later, you're eating lettuce out of your garden. You don't have to plant it. I promise you, you don't need to plant it. If you plant lettuce seed, it will not grow. Let I'm serious. Lettuce seed needs light to germinate. Okay, if you actually plant it, it won't grow. You walk down. My wife doesn't plant lettuce. Okay, she. Well, she did plant lettuce a couple of years back. Okay, and then what happens is, the lettuce comes up, it bolts, it sends a flower spike up. Once it's got those little pretty white and, and yellow flowers, she walks down. And once they dry, she walks down and she goes like this. Okay, and the lettuce seed drops to the ground. And we have lettuce again. And it's a case of, we don't buy lettuce seed. <laughs> That's it. It's as simple as that. And, I mean, you have to keep pulling lettuce plants out because there's too much. We live in an area called Clip View. Okay. Clip View is, excuse my language, it's the cockest soil out. If I was growing vegetable seed for a, for a living, um, I wouldn't choose Clipview. I wouldn't. Okay, it is absolutely horrendous soil. We've just bought the two farms next to us, and we've opened up and planted a whole lot, and we now have beautiful soil. But the soil that we started growing with 11 years ago, um, if I took a photograph of it, you wouldn't believe me. It now looks stunning, but we've thrown a lot of organic matter at it. Um, but it's a case of it doesn't matter what soil you've got. You've got sandy soil over here. Clay. You've got clay. Okay, clay soil. You need to start throwing lots of compost at it. My advice is don't dig. Do not dig organic matter into your soil. Don't. You've all heard the story. I got some cattle manure from the farmer and I put it into my soil and all of my plants turned yellow and the and the cattle manure burnt my plants. Have we all heard that story? Who's experienced it? Has anybody experienced it? Okay. The year after you put the cattle manure in, your plants were absolutely phenomenal. What happens is when you, when you put organic matter into the soil, it's high in carbon. For carbon to break down, it requires nitrogen. Nitrogen is a plant's go food. So for the carbon to break down in the soil, it locks up the nitrogen that's available inside the soil to break down the carbon. The minute the carbon is broken down, it releases the nitrogen and the plants can grow. 
So the cattle manure is not strong enough to burn your plants. It isn't. We put neat cattle manure out of our stables directly onto our plants. Nothing burns and nothing dies. Okay. The minute I dig it in, it locks up the nitrogen and there's no food available for the plants. And that's why the plants turn yellow and that's why they're burnt, but they're not burnt. Okay, if you have a clay soil, what you want to do is you want to put a compost or a mulch down this thick and you plant into that. And what will happen is you'll have a, a massive increase in your earthworm population and the earthworms will turn the soil for you. It's going to take you a couple of years. It's not something that you can fix this year. It's not something that you can fix in three years. It's a 10-year program. No, I wouldn't dig a trench. I would put it on top. I would put it on top. Double digging and French digging, it's a, it's a lot of work for very little gain. Okay, Rather take your organic matter, put your organic matter on top, plant directly into the organic matter. If you've got a lawn, the easiest way to start a vegetable garden, you've got this beautiful lawn over here and you want to start a vegetable garden in this lawn. Most people go and say, Philemon, come. <laughs> yes? Okay, so what you do, go to your local pick and pay. Go and ask for a whole lot of cardboard boxes. Okay, take the cardboard boxes and lay them flat on the grass patch that you want to actually grow on. Go and get a whole lot of compost or, or, um, or mulch. If you've got your own compost, even better. Put that compost on top of the cardboard and plant your veggies into that. Okay, the cardboard kills the grass. The grass will not be able to grow through the cardboard, but the plants can grow down through the cardboard once it's wet enough. How sandy? Beach sandy or Hart Bay area? Um, I'm from Joburg. Beach sand. I'll do the exact same thing. Exactly the same thing. Take cardboard, put cardboard down, put a nice border on top of the cardboard, bricks, rocks, whatever you want to do. Nice thick layer of, of compost or manure, plant into that. You can start any veggie garden like that. that is, that's the fastest way of doing a vegetable garden. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the question is, and just give me a thumbs up if I'm if I'm right. The question is, I've got this black cob over here and then there's a couple of yellow and red ones. If I pick the yellow and red ones out and throw them away, can I still use the black ones? Yes, you can. They're not cross-pollinated. Okay, pumpkins and watermelons. This is how we grow our, our pumpkins. Our pumpkins and watermelons are grown differently. Our watermelons are grown inside a tunnel, like I showed you earlier. Our pumpkins are grown outside in the field. So what we will do with our, our pumpkins is we originally dug a one square meter hole. I took pure compost. I filled it up with pure compost and I gave it a handful of, of Talborn Organics Vita fruit and flower. Okay, it's a high phosphorus... Um, fertilizer but it's 100% organic and we'd, we'd take our seedling that we grew inside the tunnel and plant it directly into that that food was enough to produce a phenomenal or 
or it is enough to produce a phenomenal crop of pumpkins. Okay, if you want to do it yourself, I would highly recommend that. Okay, um, instead of planting your pumpkins in a pot, because the pumpkin roots will actually extend past the hole that you've made. All right, um, that is the easiest way of growing pumpkins. Find a spot in your garden that is in full sun, that is taking up or it's not producing. Dig a hole, fill it up with compost, plant your pumpkin there. You will not regret it. Otherwise, if you have a compost heap, the best pumpkins grow on there because they grow feeders. They are very, very hungry. They, they want food. Um, Talborne Organics. We sell Talborne Organics on our website. Um, it might be cheaper for you to go to your local builder's warehouse. I don't know, if you, have you got a builder's warehouse down here? Have you seen Talborne Organics in the builders? Yeah. Correct. Sorry? You, you can use bone meal as well. Alright. Um, and there's a very good way to find out if your soil is low in calcium. Do you have cutworms? Who has cutworms? You need to add calcium to your soil. Okay? Add calcium to your soil gets rid of the cutworms. If you still got cutworms, add more calcium. What we do, um, and and Jenny, one of the owners from Talborn Organics, actually phoned me up and she said to me, Sean, why are you buying so much bone foss? Um, it's the it's a bone meal phosphate. It's one of their products. So I said, um, my soil needs calcium. She says, but Sean, you're ordering so much calcium that I think you're going to overcalci you're going to overcalcify your soil. So I said, Jenny, I've still got cutworms. She says, what do you mean? So I said, well, I've got cutworms in my garden. What used to happen was those tunnels with our tomatoes. We would plant 300 tomato plants in a tunnel every morning, five o'clock. We out looking for the Cutworms. Sorry? With a gun, yes. Okay. Um, and we would, we would go and look for the plant that's just been cut, freshly cut over, dig around the plant, find the cutworm, collect and feed them to the chickens every single morning. And then I, got, I read an organic book. And in one of the organic books it said that if you've got cutworms, your soil is low in calcium. So I thought, mm, okay... Never heard of this before. So I said, okay, fine, let's try it. And we would lose in one tunnel about 40 plants. So we would grow enough plants to fill a tunnel and then we'd grow back up for the cutworms. And we would lose, I would reckon, four, five hundred plants in the six-week period before they were actually large enough to withstand cutworm damage. Uh, and that's it's a lot of extra work every single morning looking for cutworms. Put the calcium down, we'd put about 100, 150 grams per running meter of, of, of calcium. And then we put gypsum. Gypsum, the stuff that you put on the wall. Plant the seedling, put the gypsum around the seedling. Sorry? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Just normal gypsum. It's 100% natural. It's a mined product called gypsum. You put that around the ceiling. Gypsum is instantly available calcium with a nice sulfur kick as well. Um, and our cutworm activity dropped by 
was like, okay. This year, we've planted, I don't know, 10, 11 tunnels of tomatoes. Um, we've lost five. Five seedlings. Okay, so I think we're at the right calcium level. Okay, I can handle five seedlings. It's a 0.01% loss as to, as to previous years or our, our original years. So if you've got cutworms, add calcium. You, <laughs> we eat them now. <laughs> Sorry, hang on a second. There's two questions. I'll come to yours now. The white grubs. Okay, there are 40 different kinds of white grubs. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. Okay, um, the big, those big giant white grubs, those are rhino beetle larva. Please don't kill them. Okay, um, the smaller ones can be um, Christmas beetles, get rid of them. Uh, rose beetles, get rid of them. You know, it's, it's a case of some are good, some are bad. Okay, the question is, can we use eggshells? Yes, you can use eggshells. You're going to need to eat a lot of eggs. Okay, this whole Facebook thing, guys, put eggshells on your plants. You know how many eggs you're going to have to eat to actually do that? Okay, it's a case of uh, eggshells, put them on the compost heap, they'll go through. Don't save the eggshells to put onto your plants. Go and get bone meal, it's faster, it's cheaper, and it's a lot less work. Okay. Yes. put them back into the compost heap. Yeah, just put them back into the compost heap. No, I know, I know, but it's rhino beetles. It's like it's they need to be looked after. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Corin. Okay. Um, how manure works, it goes from a so-called heat intensity. Your, your cattle manure is, is the weakest. Um, then it's sheep manure, then it's pig manure, and then it's, it's chicken manure. Chicken manure is the hottest. Okay? Chicken manure, you get phenomenal results. Um, we will run all of our manure through a vermi farm first, through a worm farm first. Okay, and then use it. We have put chicken manure directly onto our soil. Um, yes. What happens is we'll empty our stables. We do a high carbon capture inside our, our, our stables. So what will happen is our stables get cleaned out every four months. Okay, and our stables do not smell. So what happens is we've got, I think we've got 12 or 15 cattle. We've got 50 sheep um, and the sheep all go into one stable the cattle go into their, into their dedicated stables and every second morning um, my foreman will go and he will take um, wood shavings not sawdust, wood shavings and spread a thick layer of wood shavings over the top the wood shavings captures the free ammonia that's inside the stables if you walk into the stables and you can smell ammonia you're losing money that ammonia is nitrogen for your soil. So we'll take that. It gets built up to a layer about this thick, okay, and it doesn't smell. Every four months, it gets pulled out. It goes into a compost heap. 
uh, from the compost heap. It's, uh, as soon as it cools down on the compost heap, it gets put into a pile that um, we'll have. We have one row, one worm farm row. It's about 20 meters long and it's about this high. Um, and we'll build a, a new pile next to it. That worm farm will run for about three or four months. Once it's, it's been consumed, we take a, a, a pick and pay basket, a checker's basket. We'll dig a hole, bury the checker's basket in and put fresh food inside there. And all the worms go into the basket. You lift the basket out, you put it into the next worm farm. Put the basket back and you do the same story. Um, so it's not, pure, it's not pure manure going into the worm farm. It has... It has warmed up and cooled down on the compost heap. It gets moved from there onto the worm farm. It'll cool down again because the minute you turn it, it heats up. It'll cool down again after about two weeks and then we do the transfer process. Um, personally, I'm not a fan of horse manure. There's just too many weeds. Um, I have a friend that uses horse manure exclusively um, and he's very happy with it but then he's getting his horse manure from horses that live in stables, that don't walk on the grass. Okay. Questions? Any other questions? How does? How does carrot honey taste like? Um, carrots aren't pollinated by bees. The best pollinator for carrots is flies. Yeah. yeah, the flies do have a purpose, yes. To irritate you and pollinate your, your onions and your, and your carrots. Um, what I've heard is that, the, is that the carrot farms here in the Cape, um, they use bees because you have a very low um, pollen sources. You have very low pollen sources in the Cape. So that the bees will work the carrot flowers. But typically, carrots are, po are pollinated by, uh, by flies. Um, inside those... Oh, uh, thank you. Another way of doing this, okay, is you can have a whole lot of closed cages, and then all you do is you get a fly trap that you hang outside, bring the fly trap inside and open it up. Okay, so... Sorry? You've got to do that every single day, yeah. And that's how Bill does it. Bill breeds. He's, he, he's one of the top hybrid seed breeders in the country. And he just, he just catches flies. He loves it. He loves catching flies. What he does is he takes a two-liter Coke bottle, puts a bit of meat inside the Coke bottle, and he takes a soldering iron and he burns a hole into the Coke bottle. Okay? He closes it up. So he has a whole lot of these Coke bottles, and then, and then as he needs them, he goes and fetches a coke bottle, puts his hand over the hole, walks into the in, in, into the cage, shakes the bottle out, walks out again. Next day, he does the same thing. Cool. Yes, ma'am. Please ask the questions. I drove a thousand four hundred k's for your questions. <laughs> yes. Okay. So what they do is they have a breeding program. So. Um, let's talk about carrots. The easiest way to get a hybrid carrot seed is to have a male sterile plant and a female sterile plant. So your male, uh, your male um, line 
yeah, your male line will be female sterile. The female part of the flower is sterile, but the male part is fertile. And on the other plant, it's the other way around. The male part is sterile, but the female is fertile. So when you have the bees, or the bees, the flies, working your carrot, flower, uh, uh, your carrot flowers, it'll transfer the male pollen onto the female flower. The one that sets seed is the one that you want to save. And there's your hybrid seed. Okay. And you'll see, uh, if, you, um, if you look at, at seed banks, they'll list a whole lot of seed varieties with a number, and they'll say male sterile with these disease resistances, female sterile with these disease resistances. And you can actually choose what your male variety is and what your female variety is. Or you can breed your own male sterile varieties. And typically, the male sterile variety will be a hybrid already. So you'll you'll know if I, if I breed this variety and that variety, the hybrid that comes out will be male sterile. Okay, but both of those are open pollinated varieties or whatever. Yes, ma'am. Yes, my darling. Okay, so um, this anthocone over here. Same thing with the um, with the tomato flowers. The day before it's ready, you can actually see by looking at the flower that tomorrow it's going to be receptive. So what you do, and you can actually practice this at home, is take a, a tomato flower and you can break the anthocone over there. So you can actually wiggle it and break and pull the anthocone off. Once you've pulled the anthocone off, you will have this anthocone that's available and you'll have the female portion. So this will happen the day before. So now you have a whole lot of male anthocones. And you can go and say, okay, fine, I've got, I've got plant A over here and I've got plant B. You've pulled all of the anthocones off both and you've kept them separate. If I take the anthocone, the loose anthocone, to this plant over here, and I just take the anthocone and I push the anthocone over the stigma. I've transferred pollen. Does that make sense? Okay, and I've just created a hybrid. Okay, um, that is the easiest way of doing it for a hybrid tomato. Um, I actually don't know if you get male sterile t uh, tomato plants, but as far as I know, all hybrid tomato plants are actually physically hand pollinated. They actually physically, there's a guy that goes, breaks it off, and he does the work himself. It's a lot of hard work. It's, 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 um, when people complain about the cost of seed, whether it's hybrid seed, because hybrid seed is very expensive. You're looking at um, those, those English cucumbers that you buy, the Dutch, they're actually a Dutch cucumber, it's not an English cucumber, they're called English cucumbers. Um, those English cucumbers, the seed, you're paying upwards of eight rand a seed. A seed. Okay, um, the little bait alpha tomatoes that you get, one of our, one of our very close friends, um, she, she actually grows the majority of the bait alpha tomatoes for, for pick and pay. Sorry, cucumbers for, for pick and pay. Um, and she's paying, I think, 14 or 15 rand a seed for one seed and then she must still bring it in 
I actually don't know. Um, I would I would reckon the bait alphas, looking at the bait alphas that we sell, um, I would reckon you're getting 30, 40 plants, 30, 40 fruit of a, of a plant. It's not a bad return of investment, but she spends 40 rand, 40 grand a month heating her tunnels. Okay, so it's not it's not just it's not just the cost of the seed. Cucumbers are cheap. Yeah. Farming is not for sissies. Can you eat seedless watermelon? <laughs> Do you want the seeds out of a seedless watermelon? It was just sweet. Am I right? It was just sweet. But there was no taste. Yeah. So um, you get what's called diploid and triploid um, watermelon varieties, and they are hybrids. And they've been bred, so the parents had seed on both sides. They've been bred to be as seedless as possible. Because people don't like to spit the seeds out anymore. I mean, our kids, they're harvesting watermelons. He has a watermelon for you. I just want the seed. Kids go mad. <laughs> we just want the seeds. Watermelon harvesting in our place is awesome. Seedless grapes, I couldn't give you an answer. That's, I, I can't. I've, it'll be a variety that's been bred, and I'm pretty sure that they um, they use something, um, one of the cloning methods, that, that they'll have a variety that has no seed. It's not, uh, grapes aren't grown from seed. Grapes are grown from stichies, from cuttings. So they'll use one of the cloning methods. I know very little about grapes besides it makes nice wine. Okay, so we use a very complicated method of worm farming. Cost us a fortune. Um, we got one of those billboard sails. It's like a big plastic sheet. We've got a slightly sloped piece of ground. We put the sheet down. We put the, the compost on top. Add the earthworms. Put a sail over it. When we want to harvest the, the worm weed, we dig a hole in the ground. Put a bucket in. Funnel it into the bucket. Harvest the worm weed. Close it up again put it onto our plants. It goes into our drip system. That's it. There, there's, there are many ways of growing, of doing worm farming as there are worm farmers. Um, I've had worm farmers telling me that m mine's inefficient and uneconomical. It doesn't cost me a cent. Yes. Yes. Okay. I wouldn't, I really wouldn't know. If you go to um, EIGSA, Earthworm Interest Group of South Africa, the guy that runs that is his name is Ken Reed. Just send me an email, I'll put you in touch with him. It's Sean at Living Seeds. Okay, um, Earthworm Interest Group of South Africa, EIGSA, they're on Facebook. Um, it's run by Ken Reed, 
and he'll be able to tell you what I just use earthworms I'm not an earthworm farmer yes I stopped selling mushrooms yes okay so um, if you're looking for for mushrooms her name is Carla it's the mushroomfactory.co.za um, she'll ship directly to you we we lost a lot of money on mushrooms okay it wasn't Carla's fault um, it was the post office's fault when they went on strike you'll see we still don't use the post office um, they owe me about 75,000 rand which they refused to pay me um, and it's like that's cool I refuse to use you okay so um, we stopped shipping um, mushroom mushroom factories because of the cost of shipping them we found that um, the minute you send them via courier the price goes up the customers complain about the price so it was a case of that's cool get them from Carla directly okay um, and, and she's an awesome lady we just don't supply them anymore cool yes ma'am Is there anything that one can do about squirrels? Ma'am, I have I have I have no solution. I don't have a squirrel problem. We 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 have a rabbit problem or a a wild hare problem um, where they eat our our seed carrots over winter, it's very dry up in Gauteng. The rabbits need food at night, so we have a major problem with rabbits at night. Um, and all they do is they eat the top of the carrot or they don't eat the whole carrot. And once you've eaten the top of the carrot, you can just throw it away. And we've lifted carrots and stored them over winter and replanted in spring, and the carrots, the rabbits said, wow, they planted carrots for us again. <laughs> so, yeah, we have a problem with rabbits. But uh, squirrels, um, we can fence for rabbits. We can't, I don't know about squirrels. I have seen a cool thing where the guy had a spring on the bird feeder, but I don't think that's what you're asking for. <laughs> Little dash hunts. Yeah. Yes. I agree. Yes. First I've heard of it. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I've never heard of anything like that. that that's very interesting. What you'll find is that um, as your diet changes, um, you'll become more susceptible to certain things. And I think Mary Ann will have a, a far more knowledge on this than I do. But I'll give you an example. Our diet is basically MSG free. Okay. Um, however, if we go to a function and I have a couple of chips, it's like you go to sleep at night. You can actually walk down the passage and hear all of the kids talking in their sleep. And we'll have strange dreams and it's like crazy. And it's the MSG. 
Yes. Okay. The question is, there's a different rainfall, rainfall pattern in, in Gauteng as there is in, in, in the Cape. Um, and I have very little experience with growing in the Cape. So um, I'll give you an example. Tomatoes, we'll plant tomatoes in August, September. In the Cape, you plant tomatoes in August, September okay, because it warms up. They can't grow in... Um, in winter. However, if you're in northern KZN, you would grow tomatoes in winter because it's too hot in summer to grow the tomatoes. Um, with regards to what crops you can and can't plant, there really isn't that much difference. So what you'll find is that you might have an extra month. You have an extra month's leeway in planting, especially in winter or or um, or in spring. You'd either plant a month earlier or a month later. But typically, you'd plant the same crops at the same time. If you don't get any frost, that means I know certain parts of the Cape of Cape Town do get frost. Okay, so you get frost. Okay, so if you if you get frost, if you get frost, you can't plant frost-sensitive plants. If you don't get frost, then you know that certain certain crops like like ginger and turmeric we were talking about it earlier. You don't have to bring it indoors over winter. Whereas we have to bring our ginger and, and turmeric indoors over winter. So um, there really isn't that much of a difference. What you would find though is, um, so for example, crops like onions. You, you would be wanting to plant a long day length onion. You'd be wanting to plant. Um, we will plant Texas grana, which is a medium day length. You'd be planting long day length onions over here. So. Your onion variety that you plant over here would be Australian brown. You wouldn't plant Texas grana. Okay, because your day length over winter is longer than our day length in, in Gauteng. Okay, so is it shorter? Sorry, then you're looking for a short day length onion. So you're looking for, my apologies, thank you. You'd be looking for a shorter day length onion over winter than in Gauteng. And it's, uh, uh, Bloemfontein is your middle line. So if you draw a line through Bloemfontein across the country, most of Natal would be an intermediate day length or a medium day length. Below, below um, Bloemfontein, you'd be planting a short day length onion. Thank you. Yes. Sorry? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Carrot seed. Um, let me just. I, I wanted to say something about your last question. Your last question was planting in in the Cape. There's a um, a Facebook group called Veggie Gardeners Western Cape. Okay. Get onto that. Have a chat to those guys. They have a lot more knowledge about planting in the Western Cape than I do. Okay, so I would seriously join them because they'd be able to tell you guys this is what you should be looking at doing now, etc. And I know they've got a nice um, on their Facebook page under documents they've got a whole planting schedule that you can use over there. All right, okay, planting carrot seed. 
Carrot seed, um, a lot of people don't have success with carrot seed for a couple of reasons. The first thing is that the seeds never come up. Oh, you're selling junk seed. Well, no, we're not, and I'll tell you why. Okay. The second thing is that the carrots come up, but they, they look like this. Okay. Gnarly space creatures. All right. So, the first thing is the carrot seed doesn't come up. Carrot seed needs to be planted very shallowly. It's very important to plant the carrot seed very shallowly. They do need a slight cover of, 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 of soil or compost, but it needs to be planted very shallowly. So what you do is you draw a drill in the ground, plant your carrot seed, slightly cover them, and then I would advise you go and get some garden hessian. You all know what garden hessian is. Roll some garden hessian over your carrot bed and water through the, through the garden hessian. So every morning you water through the garden hessian, go to work, you come back, your, water, your soil surface will still be moist. Lift it up on, from day five, day six. The minute you start seeing little, little carrot tops coming out, remove the hessian. You don't want the plants to grow through the hessian because you lift the hessian up and you just lift your plants at the same time. Okay. Um, so that's the first way of planting carrot seed. Okay. That is the best way you'll get the best germination. Um, the next thing is those gnarly roots. Um, who gets them? Are you using manure in your soil? Yeah. Okay. Don't put manure in your soil. Manure stimulates root growth. So if, you, if you're planting a root crop, don't put something that stimulates root growth. That's counterintuitive. I know. Okay. But... You're stimulating them to actually grow all gnarly. What you want to do is, they do need food, they do need nu nutrition, so you want a 2-3-2 fertilizer, a nice balanced fertilizer, um, but you don't want something that has a lot of manure in it. Even if it goes through, especially chicken manure through the compost heap. Chicken manure is very strong. Okay. Um, so feed them with a nice balanced fertilizer, but if you're getting this lush green tops, lush green tops, small roots, too much nitrogen. If you're getting gnarly roots, too much manure. And it's manure. Yes. Okay. So the best way, can I use a piece of paper quickly? It's fine. Yeah, just like that. Okay. So what you do with your, with your carrots... As you're planting your carrots, take your seed packet and just draw a line like that. Okay? So as you walk down, you just tap like that. And what happens is that line funnels the seed into, into a straight line. And as you're tapping, you'll get a lot less clumping of the carrots. Okay? That's the first thing. When you need to thin the carrots, thin them out as early as possible. The minute they um, get away too far, if you pull one out, you pull three out. If you thin them out quite early, you just pull them out, click, 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 and you put that into your salad. Cool. Answer your question? Yeah. I've never heard of that, so I will give it a try. Yeah. 
Sorry, ma'am. Okay, so what was your name, ma'am? Debbie. Debbie says she was always taught that when you're planting your carrot seed, mix it with radish seed. So you plant the carrot and radish seed together. Radish seed, five, six weeks, you're harvesting. The carrots, three months, you're harvesting. So what happens is the radish is interspersed with the carrots, so it gives you larger gaps between the carrots, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, feeding hedgehogs. Feeding hedgehogs. Yeah, my daughter breeds hedgehogs. She has a mealworm farm. Um, I've never used mealworms in the garden. Yes, ma'am. Sorry? We do sell herbs. I'm not a herb specialist. Um, what's the question? How to grow herbs? Okay, so um, we do supply herbs. We supply about 40 or 50 herb, herb seed varieties. Um, we're not a, it's, it's a case of I don't give any advice on what to use herbs for. That was Margaret Roberts's job. Her, her daughter's now taken over. So we don't give any information on herbs, what herbs are good for. Um, I can tell you that certain herbs are very good in the garden for certain things, but there's no, there's no medical advice from my side. Yes, um, Margaret Roberts has a number of very good books out. Her, her, her companion planting book is very good. Um, we do give a fair amount of information of companion planting on our website. A lot of it is based on Margaret Roberts's information. Um, and we find that there's a lot of people on the internet that have their own information and it conflicts with a lot of information out there. And we've, we've tried to keep ours as clean as possible and remove as much conflicting information as possible. Um, but yeah, companion planting, does it work? Yes, it does. Definitely. Um, do we do companion planting? No, we don't. 700 varieties, companion planting doesn't work. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So, with, with our tomatoes, how we do it, um, we'll prepare the soil... We'll start preparing soil end of June. So what happens is we'll go through, um, right now inside our tunnels we have vetch growing, which is a green manure. We'll, we'll grow a vetch throughout winter. The vetch um, gives nitrogen into the soil. Um, when, when we actually kill the plants, we, we leave the vetch on the beds. Um, and that's inside, the, that's inside the tunnels and out in the fields as well. Um, so that's what happens over winter. Then in spring, depending on what needs to be done, typically what we will do is we will put um, a nice thick layer of vermicompost off, off our worm farms in all of the tunnels, but a nice thick layer like this, down all of the tunnels. That'll, um, it's generally um, about two weeks after the vetch has died down. So how the vetch grows, it actually grows in like a flat mat. We'll lift the mat over, We'll chop the roots and leave it like that. We'll put the vermicompost down and then actually fold it back over. So the, the vetch dies down on top of the vermicompost. When we need to plant, we'll just make a hole inside that vetch and plant our seedling inside the vetch. Um, so fertilizer um, would be 
vita fruit and flour and 100 grams of bone meal per running meter. I probably won't do bone meal this year because our cutworm issue is, probably, is basically sorted. So we'll do 100 grams of bone meal and 100 grams of vita fruit and flour before planting. Um, on top of that goes our, our mulch in the form of vermicompost or compost, depends what's available. Um, and those beds will stay like that for about two weeks. When we're ready to plant our seedlings out, we'll plant seedlings out on the 15th of September. That's typically when we plant out. We plant our seedlings out. As the seedling is planted out, it'll get a tablespoon of either gypsum or bone meal around the seedling. Um, and then they just get watered. Once the first flowers start showing, they get another 100 grams of vita fruit and flower. Um, and after the second harvest of tomatoes, another 100 grams of vita fruit and flower. That's it. Um, occasionally, if we see a magnesium deficiency, we'll, we'll put Epsom salts down. Um, I'm not a big fan of single element fertilization. So, once again, Facebook, Epsom salts, best thing forever. In your, you know, it's like, yes, but do you need it? Okay, if you don't need it, don't put it down. So, if you see a magnesium deficiency, um, there are a number of very good charts on the internet that you can actually pull down and you can see this is a magnesium deficiency, this is a phosphorus deficiency, this is a nitrogen deficiency or boron or whatever. Just pull down one or two of those charts, compare them so that they actually both look the same. Okay, um, That the symptoms look the same, not the charts. Symptoms look the same. If there's a magnesium deficiency, apply magnesium. If there's no magnesium deficiency, please don't apply it. Okay, Single element fertilization is very dangerous, especially if you over-fertilize or if you over-apply. Cool. Hundred percent. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Ah, you know what? Some people use organic soap. Some people don't use organic soap. It's, it's a case of um, the hormones coming through your tap water is probably worse than the non-organic soap. <laughs> Your avocado tree. You must be using pears. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> the soap, pears, avocado pears. <laughs> yeah, what you'll find, um, so a lot of people will say to put some soap in in water to kill aphids or bugs or tohos or whatever. And, and the reason why you put soap in is it breaks down the surface tension of the water. So insects breathe with spiracles down their sides, the little holes, okay? But the spiracle can close when it gets wet. And the water surface tension is, is, is large enough to prevent a water droplet entering the spiracle. Okay, the minute that you put soap with it, it breaks down the water surface tension and the water can enter the spiracle and drown the insect. And that's why it kills the insects. Sorry? Yes. Soap nuts, soap wort, same thing. Exactly the same. It breaks down the surface tension, does the same thing. So if you're 100% organic and you don't have any sunlight dishwashing liquid, get some soap water. It's a declared illegal alien. I didn't say that. Um, and you can use soap water. You can use soap nut. You can use anything that breaks down the surface tension of water.
Yes. Yeah. Flourishes, yeah. Excellent, guys. Any other questions? Yes. Um, yes, you can use the cardboard inside the tunnel. So if you, if you want to start, that cardboard method that I explained about starting a vegetable garden is a phenomenal way of starting a vegetable. It's the easiest way of doing it. You just lay the cardboard down, put a border on top of the cardboard, put your, your, your planting soil on top of the cardboard and plant. You can do it inside a tunnel if you want to. Um, you can do it on, on kukuyu grass, which is actually what it was invented for. Well, it's just plain kukuyu grass. It, it, it wipes out the kukuyu grass. It's fantastic. Please. <laughs> Something cold. <laughs> Guys, thank you. It's what I love doing.